The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. beyond this one that cannot be fathomed, regions that do not adhere to our ideas of reality. Dwellers in these zones could be thought of as angels or demons, or something more than human. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and large foam nut, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium covers the 1977 supernatural horror sequel, Exorcist II, The Heretic, starring Linda Blair, Richard Burton and Louise Fletcher, and directed by John Borman. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in a deconsecrated chapel, long after midnight. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about Rospo Pallenberg? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) That's a problem, because I don't know anything about him either, and yet he seems to have been a very important person in the making of Exorcist II, The Heretic. Did he write the checks or something? He was apparently John Borman's creative partner and directed some of the film himself. But I've been unable to track down much information about him. He doesn't seem to have any other film credits. I get the impression he might be some sort of spiritual guru type. Possibly. Like um, the uh, astrologer who managed to inveigle himself with Peter Sellers and wound up acting as... uh, Go between between him and uh, film producers. Wow. I do now like. I like to imagine him slinking around the set in uh, James Earl Jones' locust costume. Had you seen Exorcist two before? Nope. Had you seen The Exorcist before? Oh uh, yes, twice. And on both occasions, it did a number on my subconscious. Really? Yeah, yeah. The first time I saw The Exorcist was at university, and I slept with the light on. Afterwards, I was so scared. What a fucking baby. I know, yeah, yeah. 21 years old, I really was. <laughs> I snuck in to see The Exorcist Underage. Because, wow. Because I'm a big, hard He-Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I didn't care for it. Okay. What, you mean in terms of it, you didn't like it? or I, I didn't find it especially engaging. I didn't find it frightening in any way. What, what year did you see it? 1998. It was the year of the 25th anniversary, where it yeah. had a major national re-release. But weirdly, that was the second time I went to see it. Cause, uh, and I had exactly the same reaction. I'm sitting there in the cinema and people are laughing at People are openly laughing at the film. And I think the only conclusion I could come to was that this was after French and Saunders had done their parody. Um, probably, wasn't there a terrible Leslie Nielsen film? Repossessed. Repossessed, that was it. And I, I just wonder if people weren't laughing at the film they were laughing at their memory of the assorted exorcist. Yeah, so 1998, not a good year for, for the exorcist. Well, the audience I saw it with was well-behaved. I oh, OK. Uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, so perfect Saturday afternoon mm. viewing. Um, I did see it again at university uh, as part of a Halloween triple bill. 
Uh, it started with Halloween, oh, right. which provoked yeah. much laughter, which annoyed me because mm. uh, Halloween is a masterpiece and John Carpenter is unimpeachable. Pleased to see that he recently won an award at Cannes. Oh, good for him. Um, then the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which at the time was one of the... No, sorry, the first one. Right, yeah which um, is one of the worst films I've ever seen. And people were laughing all the way through, and I, I was joining in. And then the last film was The Exorcist. Mm. And you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. My theory, which I believe you've just disproven for me, is that the people who are really affected by it are those who have grown up in a religious background. Mm. But as far as I know... You didn't have a religious background? No, not remotely. But, neither did I. But what I did... This leads on to my controversial theory that modern cinemas don't allow horror films to work properly. When I saw The Exorcist, I saw it in a drafty university hall. I was sitting on a rickety, uncomfortable chair and I was being kind of randomly uh, gusted with cold drafts of air from various sort of places where the windows didn't fit and I saw it in really creepy surroundings and I think that helped whereas I think if you're sitting in a modern cinema with comfortable seats and oh you know there's the beverage holder there and it's all nicely air-conditioned I just think it's a lot harder to be frightened you're right um old cinemas I think were far less Mm. comfortable yeah um and uh, I I remember the scene in um the smallest show on earth, where the cinema is showing a desert film and they've deliberately turned the heating up slightly. <laughs> to make it more atmospheric. To make it more atmospheric, but also so that when it comes to the intermission and the lady comes out with the ice cream, she's almost trampled in the stampede to buy it. And actually, though, I, I saw the, the, the remake of the thing, or the prequel, rather, the one that everyone's forgotten. Yeah, I mean, yeah there's a prequel to The Thing, and it's yeah. also called The Thing. To cause confusion. That's yeah. Um, and I saw that in a cinema at, at the uh, now uh, vanished uh, Trocadero Cineworld. Oh yeah. And we were told at the box office that the air conditioning was broken in the screen. It was jammed on. Oh. Okay. And the film came out in the beginning of December, so everyone turns up wearing coats anyway. So I think, well, okay, I'll just keep my coat on. And instead of having a cold drink, I'll yeah. get a cup of coffee there instead. So I go with my little cup of coffee, watch the film with my overcoat on. This film set in the Antarctic. So it's like an interactive art project. Yeah, and I think I enjoyed the film yeah. more because it felt like I was part of the environment. When because the film itself is not very good. I went to see the first Mission Impossible film in the middle of one of the hottest summer days possible. It was a packed cinema. And the sequence when Tom Cruise is, wherever it is that Tom Cruise is breaking into in the first film, when, oh, he's, on, when he's on the wire. It's the CIA. And he's sweating. The audience was sweating in sympathy with Tom Cruise. I saw that film at a military base. Okay, yeah. Right. A fun little insight into my background. And it was a fairly crappy cinema. So what did you think of Exorcist 2? I didn't think it was terrible, is the honest answer. Oh, I, it's not brilliant. Um, I mean, it's obviously remotely what I was expecting. I mean, obviously you go into a, a, a sequel to The Exorcist and you expect it to be psychological horror, lots of rotating heads. I, I don't know. It's 
it's much more of a science fiction film, I think, isn't it, than a, than a horror. Um, it doesn't work, but in places you can kind of... See, there are a few sequences. The, the bit at the... Might as well skip to the end. The bits towards the end where they're racing to get to Washington um, and Richard Burton and Linda Blair are on the train and the other two are in an airport. There's something about that whole sequence that's got a kind of very dreamlike atmosphere to it. It might be helped by the score. Um, but yeah, bits of it are not scary, but they're quite eerie. And then other bits are rubbish. I hadn't seen the film before. Oh, really? So I watched it in advance, just normally yeah. before making my usual uh, note-taking viewing. And... I was not impressed. Oh dear, not even not even a little bit. Not really. Oh no. dear. Um, but I think it's something that's worth looking at because yeah. it's such a famous mm. dud. Oh yeah. Um, it starts with it starts with Father Philip Lamont, played by Richard Burton, arriving at a shack in Brazil, Some, somewhere, somewhere. Um, for an exorcism where a girl has been healing the sick, but people think that she's possessed by yes. something or other. And in the process, the candles get overturned and she burns to death. And Lamont is very troubled by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly at one point, uh, he prays to the spirit of Father Merrin, I believe. I think so, yes. Um I was having sound problems, not not related to the copy of the film I watched or anything like that, but I was just having sound problems in the first few minutes. So there was a point when I had to go back and just double-check some stuff. Um, I think at one point as well she's, she says something like, but I only ever tried to help people, doesn't she? Yes. yes. And that obviously is something that the film picks up on a little bit as a theme later on. And then suddenly, does it then cut to a lab? There is a cut from um, a woman apparently possessed by the devil burning to death in a shack in Brazil to a tap dancing That's rehearsal. It. Yes, yeah. Yes. And the film is filled with these neck-breaking transitions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, the reintroduction of Reagan, the possessed girl from the first film played by Linda Blair, is so abrupt. Yes. And so poorly thought out. And there's no... There's dialogue, no, there's no because that, that whole sequence I don't think has any dialogue, does it? She's just no. suddenly on stage in a spangly dress tap dancing. Yeah. And yes, you sit there and go, Well where does this go? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's literally five minutes in and yeah. I already don't know what's going on. No, that's exactly it. Who are we yes, where was Father Lamont in the first bit? Where is Linda Blair? Why is she tap dancing? Yeah. And then I think and then does it cut to the science lab or does it cut to Possibly the Vatican. First, well, we'll first go to the science lab. That's it, yes. Where a deaf girl's being fitted with a hearing aid. And this was the whole... And I, this was the point when I... Because I'd had these vague sound problems, I had to rewind. Because I was convinced I'd missed some kind of establishing dialogue. And I wasn't looking for much, but I was looking for some kind of vague thing that would... You know, here we are at the... Laboratoire Garnier School for Upset Children or something. Just help help me out a little bit. <laughs> um, John Borman, this might surprise you, but he was not the first choice to make this film. 
Um, I believe Roman Polanski. Oh, really? As his name comes up a lot in sort of, uh, on shortlists of films to direct at this time, he was also <laughs> he was also sought to uh, do the remake of King Kong. Wow! Um, Did they ask William uh, Friedkin? Uh, they had no... Uh, Friedkin and uh, William Peter Blatty, yeah. who wrote the original novel and wrote and produced the first film, they had no interest in doing anything so else. So they were just straight in, out they were just reading. Absolute, yeah. no, don't care. Several sort of scripts were developed, um, and the intention was to look at a more sort of metaphysical mm-hmm. approach than the first film. The first is philosophical. Yeah, I absolutely. think. It's a... I found the ideas in the first film more interesting than the film itself. The idea that in, a, in the modern world, what place is there for the literal forces of good and evil? Mm. How can one reconcile the world as we see it with discovering absolute knowledge of the existence of God? Yes. It's yeah. an interesting question. Yeah. And I, I, I don't feel that it's explored in the first film in a manner that I find particularly engaging. But it's, it's it's a start, yeah. And it's a well-made film, and it's telling a clear, coherent story. I don't have any real complaints with it about that. Um, but with the second one, I wanted it to be some more metaphysical, yeah. More, which is really just, I think, just an excuse to be vague. I suppose that's true. But it does feel there's because there's all these sequences of various bits of science equipment people, going, people hypnotizing each other. It remind it. It's got that very that vogue that there was in the 70s for people trying to explain stuff. It's like those sequences you would get in Space 1999 where Victor Bergman would be connecting plants to oscilloscopes. You know, it's that kind of... It's got that weird kind of dry, let's see if we can explain stuff vibe. Yeah, it's very, very odd, the tone. (laughs) Um... Reagan's being treated at this uh, home for the baffled. Wherever it is, yeah. Um, and apparently she doesn't remember mm. that whole possession thing. Uh, presumably no one's told her. Yeah, I suppose not. Because she seems fine. Yeah. That's the odd thing. All the way through the film, she seems like she's fine. Yeah. I suppose it would be... If you were really ill as a kid... Would you necessarily remember it as an adult, or would you just remember a series? This is three years later. I suppose that's true. And she was reasonably... She wasn't that. She wasn't supposed to be that young in The Exorcist, was she? She was 12, yeah. I think, and here she's 15. So, yeah, you would expect some... Yes. Um, just remember that time the priest jumped out of your bedroom window. Well, it's not... I mean, she was possessed by a demon. Yes. So, OK, she doesn't remember any of that. Yeah. But she doesn't even seem to have any awareness that there was this traumatic event. No, this thing, or that anyone around her was upset. Or, yeah. yeah. And this, yeah. I'll probably come on to this later. I, I, I think that the, the, possibly the two, the two weak links in this film, unfortunately, are Linda Blair and Richard Burton. Um, I don't think... Linda Blair, she's doing her best, but... Oscar nominee Linda Blair. But for which for the Exorcist, yeah, that's which is tricky because she wasn't the only one playing the character, and she was being directed by a, a maniac. 
for want of a better phrase at that point. I mean, yeah, this was a guy that was, wasn't he, didn't he punch a priest at one point or something to make him more upset? Yes, the, the, the scene at the end where yeah. uh, Father Dyer is giving uh, Father Karras the last rites, Father Dyer isn't being played by an actor, he was played by an actual priest, who's actually quite a good actor mm. under the circumstances, and he wanted him to be really sort of traumatised and upset, so he slapped him across the face yeah. hard, twice, and then called action. Yeah. Which is why in the in the scene his hand is shaking. Yeah. Um, so there's. Uh, so you've got Friedkin who rules yeah. the sets like he's Mussolini, and now you've got John Borman, who, frankly, is spending most of the film off his face. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to look at the films that the directors made prior to the Exorcist movies. Friedkin's previous film was The French Connection, mm. a tough, serious, realistic story Borman's last film was Zardoz was that but yes it was wasn't it God. and the thing is exorcistic cause, and of course he goes on to do Excalibur which is a bit of a dreamlike and slightly boring examination of the Arthurian myth um, and but it's got a decent script and I think it's yeah. one of his best films but it does fit but the exorcist too kind of fits in with the sort of films that Borman was making yeah it's, it definitely feels like He's been allowed to do what yeah. he wants to do, but he he never asked whether or not he should. No, exactly. <laughs> because he started his career with several very strong films in a row. Um, famously, he did um, the Dave Clark musical. Oh, that's right, Catch Us If You Can. Catch Us If You Can. Yeah. How come in the Dave Clark Five only one of them is called Dave Clark? I, I suppose yes. No one knows. Um, and on the strength of that, he did Point Blank which is a fantastic film. Helen the Pacific, which is fantastic. Deliverance, which mm. is fantastic. And then Zardoz. And then this. Yes. And you can tell exactly when he discovered cocaine. When everything seems like a good idea. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. giant floating heads, love it. Yeah, fantastic. Put it in. Apparently he doesn't remember lots of <laughs> making Zardoz because it was just a wonderful blizzard. Um... At uh, Dr. Gene Tuscan's uh, lab of what, what whatever's what, going on there with 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 the with the big foam nut that they have in the background that people that the kids play with. That's part of the problem, actually, with all those sequences. You'd, I'm just sitting there looking at the background, going and the weird set design with all the the, the octagonal glass offices, and also the very weird sense. There's, I, I think, I think this is just one of several occasions where the the reach exceeded their grasp. But the Doctor will flick a light, and I think the implication is that the walls of the glass octagon are, going, are becoming opaque. But obviously what's actually happening is that the lights everywhere else are being turned off. So there's just this sense that you work in this place and just every now and again you're plunged into darkness for no, <laughs> for no obvious reason. Uh, the, the big foam nut was actually an educational toy that they'd found from somewhere. I have no yeah. idea how education was supposed to be. Presumably it came with a big foam bolt at some, <laughs> at some point. And a really big padlock. <laughs> yes. And just fastened on the outside of the building. Uh, and Gene uh, uh, also has a hypnosis machine. Yes, yeah. Oh, and they talk about going in sync, don't they? Which, again, is one of those weird 70s sci-fi Bi- Biofeedback, man. Yeah. Yes, uh, they uh, synchronising biofeedback by bringing two altered states together and it works by first hypnotising one person and then the hypnotised person hypnotises someone else 
um, which is not even the funniest thing in this film. No. Not even James Earl Jones spitting a tomato. That's very, very odd. But to be fair, it's a memorable image. Uh, meanwhile, in the Vatican, there's a meeting with a cardinal. Or the Vatican question mark, I guess, because I mean, I'm assuming it's the Vatican. I mean, it could be the... Given the speed that Richard Burton gets from that meeting to the home for upset children, it could be the that Roman Catholic Cathedral in New York, for we know. It could be the Vatican's branch office in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and the Cardinal wants him to investigate... The whole exorcism. It's the death, isn't it? Yeah, specifically the death of Father Marin. Uh, because Marin apparently was uh, writing all kinds of things about evil overthrowing good, and mm. it's been suggested that he was maybe a Satanist. And none of this is in the first film. No. <laughs> um, and no, the... this, is, this is a prequel and a sequel in the same film, isn't it, basically? Yeah. Because it tells you what everyone was doing before and after. Well, there is actually a, an actual prequel oh, to really? The Exorcist. It's called Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist. Um, it's one of those fun film stories, which it's almost worth covering in Cinema Limbo, that um, no less than Paul Schrader oh, right. was hired to write and direct an Exorcist prequel mm. because he's the most famously Catholic weirdo of filmmakers. Yeah. So he made this film called Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist. Showed it to the studio and they said, no. <laughs> so they hired a new director, they completely rewrote the script, they reshot the whole thing with only, I think, two members of the same cast, wow. and they released the, the second version, yeah. which was The Exorcist, The Beginning, directed by Rennie Harlan. Um, and I saw it in the cinema, and it's not very good. Wow. And it stars Stellan Skarsgård as Young Father Marin. Okay. Which, if nothing else, is perfect casting. Yeah. Um, and Dominion was eventually released separate. Had a little theatrical release. It's, oh, it is out on DVD. Uh, I haven't seen it. Hmm. Um, but apparently, it's also not great because yeah. it's one of those ones where Paul Schrader was just allowed to be weird. Yeah. And wildly undisciplined, like that film he made with uh, Lindsay Lohan and the porn actor. Yes. I've heard of it, but I'm probably never going to see it. Um, we have another jump cut, and suddenly Father Lamont's at the hospital. He's just there, and this is as I say, this is the point when I'm, I I went back and, and had to rewatch the 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 because I was just convinced I'd missed some key bit of dialogue. So um, your, your DVD player skipping every other chapter. It did did kind of feel. I mean, to be fair, the film kind of settles down, but. But it's it's that interesting thing that you realise how important sort of world building is in the script because once it gets off to a dodgy start, you just yeah. There's there's very little connective tissue no, between the right. sentences. Um, and he's there, and then suddenly everyone's talking about going into sync, and everyone's just yeah, it's fine. Like, with like it. Immediately they say, "Oh yeah, let's let's hit, let's all hypnotise each other <laughs> with this fucking torch machine." Yes very hard for me to take this even remotely seriously um, but uh, Lamont is clearly a nutcase mm. and Jean thinks that Reagan is repressing guilt over the deaths that resulted yeah. in the first film and she's worried that she could self-harm because she seems to be the one character in the movie who's not insane Yeah, um, the character was actually originally written as a man okay um, but um, at some point decided just to cast yeah, well, Louise Fletcher 
And it's, a, it's a, an interesting casting choice because the last thing she did was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, right. Where she plays an outright evil medical professional. Oh, is she Nurse... She's Nurse Ratched. Yeah. And in this, she is a genuinely good yeah. doctor, bit of a crackpot, hmm. but someone who is genuinely caring about her patients. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen her in anything where she's not playing a kind of evil villainous character apart from this. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, well, hopefully she's nice in real life. Yeah. <laughs> the old thing about uh, villains are always best played by nice people yeah. because they don't have to hide any of their own malevolence. That's why Tom Cruise always plays heroes. Hmm. Um, yes, I'm, I've got to know. That I don't know what the time scale is. No. That it's something that, you know, Lamont's teleporting from place to place. Yes. He's just there and, yes, everyone's throwing around all these bottles. I mean, and, then, it, and then suddenly it's the next day. Yes. Bang! Sun comes yeah. up. Yeah, because they do that weird kind of thing that where they go, oh, well, we'll do this, but we'll do it tomorrow. And it's a thing of... And then it cuts to tomorrow and everyone's there to be to hypnotise each other and whatever the hell else they're planning on doing. But you don't need... Just go straight into the hypnotism sequence. Or have something in the middle. Yeah. So, oh, well, we'll leave that tomorrow and, and try something then. And then you cut to Lamont in his hotel room and he's... Oh, he's agonising over yeah, something. Yeah, or he's writing notes, or, yeah, almost something. Or praying. And, 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 or praying. Yeah. You could be pra- praying to Father Merrin for guidance, perhaps. Mm. You could have... You could give him a personality and a character, because Richard Burton... Um, Richard Burton, I think this synchronises... Synchronises? Mm. With his, one of his periodic divorces from Elizabeth Taylor. I had a quick look at his... Uh, filmography on IMDb and this is his first film back after a three year gap as far as I could say oh yeah so and I think I think he got married to Elizabeth Taylor again and then divorced within the space of about nine months or so and then I think he was having problems with alcohol and stuff and he went off to dry out and stuff and yeah this this appears to be his comeback from it's a good choice on paper yeah but I do get the feeling all the way through that he is just sleepwalking through. He's this. not engaged with the material. Um, you compare—I mean, you compare it to the Medusa touch, yes. which um, I know is one of your favourites. Well, uh, weirdly, he has dialogue at times where he's talking about the nature of evil or society, where he could almost be reciting lines from the Medusa touch. Mm. And yeah, he's not. Um, and in that, he's totally engaged yeah. and he's totally charismatic, but also. He's in that film. He's the guiding force of the movie, yeah. but he's not physically in it very much because yeah. of the way the film's structured. Whereas here, he's in it all the way through, and he's a lot of the time he's really just a bystander. Yeah, but they all every character kind of feels like I would be hard pushed to tell you who the lead is in a way. I mean, it's probably meant to be Richard Burton. But... Well, he's. I mean, he would be billed first yeah. because he's famous actor Richard yeah. Burton, but. Logically, the lead character is Reagan. Yeah, but then there are whole sequences where she's not in it. Yeah, and, and it... it's not an ensemble <laughs> piece because there aren't really enough characters, which is fine. Yeah. But it needs to sort of settle on something, which yeah. is why the, the the script is so confused. I mean, you had William Goodhart's script, which then. Uh, Borman and Pallenberg took over and, mm-hmm. and massively rewrote. And we've no idea who Pallenberg is. No, he's um, a man of mystery, yeah. So, it's... 
it's clearly conforming to something that they wanted, but yeah. it's never clear what they're trying to do or say. No. Um, so they have a go with the, the, the hypnosis machine, and my note here just says, what the fuck? Well, it leads on to quite a nice little sequence where you... Oh, hang on, no, this is where... this. I'm thinking of the different bit where they hypnotise the priest. This is the first time around they hypnotise the doctor, don't they? Yeah. The doctor... No, Gene Tuskin, the doctor, hypnotises yeah. Reagan. Yes. Then Reagan hypnotises Father Lamont. Is that right? No, it's... Uh, is it, uh, Reagan hypnotises Dr. Jane because she wants to walk her through... He, she wants to walk Reagan through her nightmares, but then Dr. Jane's heart starts fibrillating. And so... They, um, so Linda Blair tags Richard Burton and he takes over on the hypnosis match. And then he's talked down, and that's when you get the whole sequence of him kind of seeing um, Linda Blair and possessed Linda Blair like fighting over her heart literally fighting yes. over her heart which is actually quite a clever thing I think, I think it's done in I think it might actually be done almost with like a, gla- a sheet of glass or something I get the impression it's done in camera almost like a mix of prosthetics and Pepper's ghost yeah yeah um, and this a, again is actually quite clever it's not as I say not scary but atmos- certainly atmospheric it's, it's interesting yeah um and having the the two Linda Blair's Reagan and mm. let, let's call her Pazuzu, yes, that's, yeah, that that's the name sense. of the demon, um, as almost like a tug of war over. That's it because they've talked Doctor Jean back to the moment of the exorcism, hasn't she? So yeah. she's acting as Max von Sydow's character, whose name escapes me temporarily. Father Merrin. So she's she's standing in for Father Merrin, and as Father Merrin has the heart attack at the end of The Exorcist, that's when her heart... It's all quite... It's quite clever. Yeah. It <laughs> but could, it's clever in a sort of chin-strokey... It needs to be clearer, yeah. I think. They, they get out of it. Yes. And then there's uh, there's a cut, and suddenly Reagan's talking to some patients... Yes, and uh, I've lo- I've forgotten. To see, I only watched this film yesterday, <laughs> and while I remember individual bits, I don't actually remember the the plot. The collecting tissue. Yeah. Gene's yeah. um, concerned about lasting psychological effects from the uh, yeah the the hypnosis machine, whereas uh, Lamont says, oh, "Oh, what I saw was it was horrible, mm. utterly horrible." And as he says that, he's looking straight down the barrel of the camera. Well, yeah. I think he's trying to tip the audience off. Reagan's drawn a picture of Lamont. With Yes. But it's surrounded by flames. And from that, he deduces that the building's on fire. Yeah. Fine. And as he starts running around all over the building. Yes. And eventually they find a burning box in the basement, which he extinguishes by smashing it with a crutch. Yes. <laughs> And kind of spreading the fire around a bit. But that does, <laughs> that does lead on to my favourite, the, the bit of the film that I, I did laugh at. It's quite sweet, though. Is when they've evacuated the children from the the centre for whatever it is. Because yeah. the children all apparently live there. Because it's night yeah. at this point. But in the background, the firemen have got like the 
bouncy thing that they use for people jumping from multiple windows and one of the kids is jumping up and down on the show it's, <laughs> it's way off in the deep background but it's a really nice little moment and I can only assume that the, the extras were off amusing themselves while the rest of the film was being shot a good director would have put that in deliberately well yeah like, like had like a, a couple of the kids wearing fireman's helmets yeah because the fireman just let them try them on <laughs> Oh, and then, but, but then, because of course, Linda Blair. There is a sequence where Doctor Jean sees Richard Burton standing in front of some flames, and it exactly matches the picture. Yeah, which is significant in some way. So Jean thinks that the machine's given him some sort of access to mm. her um, psychic abilities that Reagan has, and this proves that Pazuzu is still locked inside. Reagan in yes. some way and then Reagan goes to bed yes and in her sleep she hears the voice of Pazuta saying oh we're going to go flying oh that's right yes and then we start having visions of African villages and locusts yeah um, and it, yeah just like random shit it'll probably make sense later on okay um, I mean I'm assuming that the film editor isn't just sitting there in front of a what do they call it the Steinbeck and she's going oh no I've dropped everything on the floor again I think this film was edited by Stevie Wonder. <laughs> um, we then get to the part of the film which I believe to be legally actionable. Okay. Which is Reagan getting out of bed and sleepwalking right up to the edge of the building. Yes. That's Linda Blair and she's not tied to anything. No. And that... And it's like the 20th story of a building. In fact, but that's the building that's got the world's most useless safety barrier, isn't it? Because literally... There's big gaps in it. Yeah. Um, that sequence is an act of criminal irresponsibility yeah. by John Borman. Um, yeah. No, there, there, there have been similar examples in filmmaking history and people have died. Yeah. Um, the Twilight Zone is the, the go-to example, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's... Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that with your actors. Don't make them stand right on the edge of a on the edge of a drop over Fifth Avenue. That actually, my that's filmed on top of Six 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 Fifth Avenue. Yeah, it's the headquarters of Warner Brothers. Oh, oh God, that's dangerously appropriate. Um, yeah, you have a stunt person and yeah. you have them secured. Yeah, not if you're John Bourne. You got. Sean Connery to dress up in an orange nappy. Apparently, people yeah. will just do random shit on his face. He's obviously just very charismatic. So, and suddenly, she's fine. Yes. Well, then she starts. She screams for help. And the Sharon, the aunt. Uh, no, no, not an aunt. Nanny caretaker. Oh, okay. Assistant right. to um, Reagan's mother, who's refused to be in this. Who's, who's uh, Mrs. Not appearing in this film. Yeah. Um. She's making a different shit film somewhere else. Um, yeah, and suddenly she's just turning to the pigeons there when she arrives, having yeah. screamed for help. Yes. And then she goes off to uh, Georgetown to meet Father Lamont. And, That's and right. we cut to a back lot because they weren't allowed to film in the street. And this again is one of these bits that I don't want to start sounding like, how did this get made? But this is kind of one of those bits that does that makes no sense. Because does the oh god what was the what, what's the aunt slash cleaner's name again Sharon 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 she hasn't met Father Lamont has she I don't think I don't think so not at this point no 
but they but father sharon's in new york father lamont's in new york there's no need for them both to go to washington to meet in washington they except of course that you have to remind the audience of the house from the first film yeah but maybe you could set the film in washington and then you could cut it no that doesn't matter (laughs) so they're in washington for a, a scene that lasts what two minutes and then they're back in new york yeah uh, Lamont asks Reagan all sorts of questions about Father Marin, and they find locusts in the bedroom, uh, and everything's covered in plastic sheets. Yeah. Um, Reagan and Father Lamont then use the hypnosis machine, and together they have a vision of Marin in Africa, mm. where there was a, a boy with powers, and he was possessed because evil is drawn to good. And yes. The boy was called Kokomo. Kok, that's right. And he was possessed by locust powers. Stop making it sound stupid. Because Pazuzu is the king of the evil spirits of the air. Kokomo was carried to a high plateau and there was an exorcism in a changer, in a chamber, sorry. Yeah. And um, in a series of very poorly edited bits where they're gradually taking makeup off his face. That's so that right, yes. He's, yeah. he's being evil to being normal. And Lamont says, right, well, I want to meet Kokomo. Uh, and then he's taken on the wings of a locust to Africa. Yes. Um, yeah, and then there's th- some sort of flying footage, isn't there? Like? Yeah. Flying all the way through the village, right into the face of James Earl Jones, who spits a leopard right into the camera. That's right. Well, that's right. And then they keep talking. And this is one of those points when, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel that, that they might have taken too much inspiration. They keep talking about him being guarded by a leopard. or a le- he's got, but Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't come back. No. I've got a note at this point. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, that's a fair. Why is Pazuzu showing Kokomo to Lamont? Because Pazuzu is the one giving the, offering this vision. Except there is... Uh, so there is the line later in the film when James Earl Jones is talking to... Kokomo is talking to Father Lamont about locusts and that they are happy go lucky grasshoppers until they brush each other with their wings and then they swarm. I think Pazuzu is metaphorically... Sorry, I made... Sorry, listeners, I made air quotes at that oh, point. Oh, I do that a lot, don't worry. <laughs> um, I think he is metaphorically brushing Father Lamont with his evil wings in an attempt to corrupt Father Lamont and make him join the evil swarm. Yes, but then how or why is he then showing him this vision of Kokomo? Is it by accident? I think it's cor- I it think just, it's part of the process of corrupting. It's a bit it, like sort of giving him access into his psyche, giving him a vision of his nemesis. I think it's a bit like the idea of using the dark side of the force. Or the more you use it, the more you become. So, so the, the the fact that that Pazuzu is ostensibly helping Father Lamont is all just part of the pro- the longer he can keep Father Lamont relying on him or using his dark powers, he will just become more evil. Because then there's that sequence a a little bit later where he's in Africa and he says... He makes the mistake of saying this conversationally, which is never a good idea, but that he flew there there with a locust in a vision. And that's, of course, when everybody stones him because they they realise he's he's cohorting with the devil. Cohorting? Cavorting. A cohort? Yeah, possibly. Anyway, yes, for, for Pazuzu, for diabolical reasons of his own, is showing Father Lamont how he can be defeated. Mm. 
Later on, Pazuzu tells Father Lamont all about Darth Plagius. Quite possibly. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Reagan talks to an autistic girl who is suddenly healed. Yes. Um, because she's the good locust. Because she's the good locust. Yeah, which we'll come back to later. And the, the young girl asks Reagan what was wrong with her. And her reply is, oh, I was possessed by a demon. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, it's, it's, it's okay, he's gone. Yeah. In that exact tone. Yeah. And there's a, there's, a, there's a reaction shot from the girl, which is just perfect. It's like, what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> I've only got autism. You're fucking crackers. I think as well, and maybe, maybe I'm not being fair to Linda Blair by saying she's... I, maybe she just doesn't know how to play the line she's given. Because I don't know how to play that line. How do you play the line, I was possessed by a demon, but I got better? This is a hospital. Yeah. Probably. So, so now she accepts that she was possessed by a demon. Yes. Because we've gone from one state to the other state with no intermediate, yes. no, no, no connecting tissue. No, exactly. Again. The problem with this film is that it's all jumps. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, like a locust. Yeah, maybe. There's no progression. It's just we're at A and now we're at B. There's no yeah. journey. There's no development. No. And it's then- just abruptly things are now in different states. And there's not even... I mean, the, the other way that you could have made this this work would have been if in the sequences where uh, Linda Blair is saying that she doesn't remember what happened to her, you just... Um, you cut to a close-up of her looking a bit shifty or something that says she's obviously lying. But yes, no, she, she's gone from... Remember, if you take everything at face value, she's just gone from remem- from not remembering to remembering. But she's fine with it. Yeah, there's no coming to terms with this incredible experience. Hell exists. That would be... That would be you know, yeah. yeah. A, a view of the entire universe yeah. has been exploded. Hell exists. The damned are tormented for all eternity. Your loved ones are in heaven. It's okay. Yeah. I'm fine now. <laughs> yes. Jesus Christ. If only he was. I mean, at, at some point in this film... You know, you're going to have to start praying for divine intervention. (laughs) I hope Christ knows a good script doctor. It turns out, yes, it turns out that Reagan is saying, well, gee, can I help anyone else? Yes. And (laughs) Lamont overreacts Mm -hmm. so fantastically. Um, Oh, this is, you know, about saying this this is some incredible event. Oh, no, this, Dr. Tusk is saying, no, this has some kind of, Scientific reactions. Don't don't hide behind science. So far, father, you're getting obsessed. I'm not obsessed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, so, yes. And, and and it should actually be Father Lamont that's because he should be the one that's going for one of them. You know, know your powers are fueled by evil. In the best. I mean, obviously, you don't want to say it in a way that upsets. Uh, Regan, but yeah, effectively he should realise that her powers are being fueled by the demon Pazuzu, and no, of course she shouldn't be trusted to heal any other of the upset children, because it would probably be some kind of long-term curse. Going back to what you said earlier, I think this film does make more sense if you imagine it to be a Star Wars film. Sort of. And that these powers are the Force. Yeah. It makes it so much more coherent. It's definitely science. It's it's not horror. It's definitely much more science fiction. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, but, but yeah, but you just kind of accept, right? These are magic powers. Mm. Um, but it's so poorly defined. No, 
and the, the whole brushing of the wings thing is it's a metaphor but it's also real yes <laughs> it's it just there's a it's lot. not thought out no. enough whereas to say yeah it's the force okay mm. that's a nice easy explanation for everything yeah but the film is, is trying to sort of reach towards things that are more complex, but it doesn't know how. No, it's so a, it winds up being not one thing or the other. It's doing the science, sorcery, you know, science um, sorcery debate from the demons in a weird sort of way, isn't yeah. it? It's that magic versus reality. And, but doing it very, very poorly. Mm. Um, Lamont goes to a museum and Reagan meets him there because she sensed that he was there. Which yeah. reminds me of the episode of Friends where they're talking about martial arts and um, Ross believes that he has sort of very highly tuned powers because he once had a yellow belt in karate. Yeah. And uh, at, one, at one point, he has his back to the door and Rachel walks in and goes, Rachel, I sensed it was you. Yeah, no, it does, it does kind of come across like that. Merrin, Merrin believed in a world mind, it says here. Possibly, um, and uh, well, no, that so, that 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 we're evolving towards a world mind. Oh yes, yeah, but believe in the idea of a world. Yeah. Mind. and Lamont asks permission to travel to Africa to meet Kokomo which and find is, out how he survived being possessed, which is denied, and then it's which, denied. Yeah, he's he's taken off the case and told to hand his Bible and crucifix. Yeah, so he goes, he goes to confession anyway. and, oh, and, no, and yes, and confesses disobedience and pride, and then. Just like in Star Trek Three, having been denied permission, he will therefore go anyway. Yeah. And there's a scene. There's another scene on the roof by um, uh, Reagan and Sharon's apartment, and there's a mirrored wall. Oh, that's right. And the camera pans around, and you can see the camera in the wall oh, reflected missed, back. I missed that bit there. I mean, I was kind of looking at the bit where Sharon is reflected, and it's. Quite a nice piece of cinematography. They're, they're making good use of the location it's until they reflect the camera back yeah. into the, to the lens, obviously. Who was the uh, DOP on this? <laughs> William Fraker. Oh, that's right, William Fraker, yes. Sorry, the only reason I, uh, I I misread it at first as something Frakes and thought maybe it was Jonathan Frakes' dad from Star Trek The Next Generation. But then you remember... Oh, right, yes. Um... I was actually thinking William Riker. Yeah, well, there is that as well. Um, uh, he'd uh, been Oscar-nominated a number of times. Um, later that same year, for Looking for Mr. Goodbar, for Heaven Can Wait. Oh, OK. For 1941. Wow. War Games and Murphy's Romance. See, he knows, he knows which way to point a camera. Yes, but none of his films are really exceptional. I mean, he does actually have a track record at uh, Cinema Limbo because he was the DOP on Street Fighter. Oh, gosh. Sorry. I, oh, he did The Day of the Dolphin. There's a film I've always wanted to see. Close Encounter. Oh, the additional photography on Close Encounters. Oh, dear. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Additional photography. So maybe he was mainly... Uh... He doesn't strike me as a Roger Deakins type. No. The kind of painting with light and colour type. Well, no. As you say, he knows how to work the camera. He's a good technical man. And, and, I, and, and he knows how to take... He obviously knows how to take advantage of opportunities. So that he, somebody went up there and went, oh, look at all the nice reflections. Yeah, great, let's do it. Um, but there's no sense of any great overriding vision or... No. Yeah, the sequences inside the 
the lab are just very um, brown. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 stereotypically 70s. Yeah. The colour scheme, the weird spiritualism, mm. the over-ostentatious design, it, it couldn't come from any other time. No. Lamont arrives in Africa, in generic Africa. Yes. The country of Africa. And um, uh, he finds where the the man who fell off the mountaintop yes. lands in his vision at the same time as Reagan is performing in her tap dance show. Yes, that's it. So you, it's Which is the only again. time the tap dance show comes back at all. But... And because, because he's had this vision, Lamont is accused of being a devil worshipper yes. as he starts getting stoned, at which point Reagan starts having seizures. Yes. And shrieking. And, and, and tries to just keep dancing. I was say, and the show carries on around her. <laughs> and she's in agony. She's still yeah. trying to tap dance. But the, she's obviously in distress. She's obviously in distress, but the audience... Don't this care. is obviously part of the... Until, it, until she literally does a stage yeah. dive. Yeah, she falls off the stage. And then she's, she's uh, doped up by... Um, the doctor who apparently just carries that stuff around with her. Yeah. And uh, Lamont escapes from being stoned by running away. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, so he goes and asks some directions from a nun Yeah. about how to get to Kokomo and is told that he can get a lift from Ecumenical Edwards. Yes, from Ned Beatty. Which is a cameo by Ned Beatty, who arrives, uh, with <laughs> who arrives by playing with an enormous cross. Yeah. Um, because he's seen a city, he's had a he's had a series of visions, which include a city, hasn't he? Yeah. And nobody knows the description of this city except obviously Ned Beatty recognises it and will take him there in his plane. Yeah. Um, the city of Jeffy. And then God bless, God bless the the script. At one point, doesn't Richard Burton is having a conversation in the plane with Ned Beatty and goes, "Oh, I've flown this way before." I said, oh, really? How did you get here? And he's, I think he says on the wings of a locust. On the wings of a demon. Oh, on the, and, and the conversation just kept... Because if you were... Oh, trapped in a plane with a lunatic. That's, that's nice, yeah. With Richard Burton breathing insanity and whiskey all over you. So, so Ned, Ned Beatty's character thinking, hmm, last time I went, I went one of these crazy journeys, I was... I was Going down, the, going down the river in the Appalachians with my pals in a canoe, yeah. and look at how that turned out. Here we go again. Yes. Oh no. Yeah, and then they're spraying for they're spraying for mosquitoes, which it seems to be the only reason for that. The journey to the city is a, a special effects shot, is a is a miniature. Yeah. And the only reason for them spraying for mosquitoes seems to be that it allows them to get gunk on the window of the plane, so that they can just transition from back projection footage of Africa to model footage. It's just yeah. slightly art. It, it, it's, it's slightly artless in the way it's done. Slightly art. <laughs> having, having arrived at the city, Lamont wanders around all, all night through what is very clearly a set. Just going Kokomo and having... Very... And calling for help from Pazuzu. Oh, yes. Because that worked so well. Yeah. Don't ask the devil for help. He'll, he's, he'll trick you. Yeah. Um, and eventually he finds a little mud hut and goes inside and Kokomo, played by James Earl Jones, mm. is dressed as a locust, sitting on the other side of a pool of water with little metal spikes sticking out. Now, I'm, I'm going to stick my head, 
Necker. So this again, I'd argue that this is one of the sequences that is quite eerie and and works in its own right because it's a very there's something very peculiar about the kind of the locust costume that Kokomo is wearing, and he bows his head to the camera, and when he does that, you can just see this locust mask, and it's very it's it's effective, I think. Yeah. Um, he says that if you have faith in God, you can cross the pool. Mm. For some reason, he's already taken his shoes off. Yes, there is this whole sequence that, that literally... And, and, I, and again, I, I rewound the film to check this. He wanders through the streets of the city fully shod, and then suddenly he's standing in front of the pool and his shoes have disappeared, because continuity is for jerks. Yeah. And um, he also says that if the devil appears or something, then he will spit a leopard. At which point he spits a tomato, tomato out onto one of the spikes, and we see that the spikes are really sharp. So Lamont steals himself, reaches out, steps forward, and, and the, sp- the spike goes straight through his yeah. foot. And this is quite, again, this is a really weird, quite nasty dreamlike sequence. And then he pitches forwards, and he's about to fall onto the spike, and then suddenly he's somewhere else. Yeah. I quite I I I I like that. I think this is one of the bits where the film works. Lynn, I've pissed my foot on a spine. <laughs> yeah, I mean the film is now doing away with any connected tissue at oh, all. Oh yeah, because yeah. he is now abruptly at a, an insert uh, an insect research lab yes. run by Kokomo. Run by Kokomo, who is dressed perfectly normally, wearing yeah. a lab coat, and is breeding bad qualities. He's using. He's breeding the good locust, yeah. who will brush its wings against the other locusts and calm them down and turn them into happy little grasshoppers. Mm. And he explains all of this yeah. immediately to a total stranger who has just suddenly collapsed in his lobby out of nowhere. Yeah, well, it's nice to have somebody take an interest. Um, and all this talk about, oh, it's the good locust resists the, the pull of the swarm. I think it's... They're not even bothering to try and make it subtle now. They, they, yeah. it's, it's always they're never getting the tone right. It's obviously Reagan. Yeah, Reagan is the good locust. The, the the poor unfortunate who burns to death in the first scene was another good locust. Yes. Yeah, and Kokomo is a good locust. Kokomo is a good yeah. locust. So Reagan wakes in her clinic to very sappy music and checks herself out. And just and this is one of the this is a. Great sequence because the duty of care and those nurses at the whatever this thing is. Presumably. Oh, it's, yeah, she's just at the clinic again. She just goes bye, and the nurse and the nurse just says, just watches her go. And I think I think the nurse might phone somebody up a bit later and go, oh, by the way, Reagan's just wandered off. Hey, you know that girl who was possessed by the devil, yeah, and had a massive seizure for no apparent reason, yeah, and you said, yeah, she's just her. checked herself out in the yeah. middle of the night. That's okay, isn't it? Oh, she doesn't even get out of her chair. No. Well, yeah. She's probably been on her feet all day. She's just doing another shift. Yes, yeah. Reagan waits at the museum uh, as Lamont arrives back. Um, Is this the bit... And there were a few bits in this film where I don't know if there's some half-hearted attempt to suggest things are going on. That scene starts really weirdly with one of the extras kind of like shouts at somebody or... And there's a, there's a couple of points towards the end of the film, I think, where you suddenly get extras acting in weird ways that kind of draw attention to themselves a little bit. 
I don't know if it's deliberate. I don't know if it's meant to be saying something. But that's the one that sticks in the memory. Is I just remember that one of the extras kind of like shouts at another extra, and you kind of look at it and go, "Oh, this is going." Oh no, it's not. Mm. <laughs> anyway, Reagan's stolen the sink machine, and they're going to go off and sink each other. Yeah. Um, with the with the sink machine. Lamont gets possessed by Pazuzu or something or he's in a trance I think yeah I think he's I think he's in a trance yeah and anyway they're going back to George and they're going back to Georgetown yeah and they're, they're going to take a train and Jean and Sharon follow after her in a and in a, in a plane and at one point the, the, where they're on the train the guard is trying to yeah. drag uh Reagan away, and <laughs> Richard Burton snaps, Let, leave her alone, she belongs to me. Yes. In a way that's not at all suspicious. No, that's right. But apart from the silliness of that bit, there is something quite nice and dreamlike about this whole sequence. Um, and the same with the sequence of them trying to get, with uh, Jean and the uh, aunt trying to get to the airport, where... Um, they come across like a car. You know, there's this sense of barrier, you know, you know of evil fighting back and trying to stop them getting into Washington and there's a car accident and they have to get out and, and stop that. And then, oh, there's, I'm sure something else happens, but I don't know who... Well, their, their cab from uh, the airport to the house in Georgetown, um, there's suddenly a crash and the car you know, goes swerving all over the road. Well, you've, you've skipped one of the things that I really liked is when they're on the plane... The plane is afflicted. There's turbulence and all the passengers are shrieking and hugging each other. The walls of the interior of this plane are all stained with yellow and I cannot work out what's been going on in there. I don't know if it's like um, a one that they use for training or whether it's whether whether they've just... this is They've borrowed it from the set of Airport 77 and it's just like damp. But I just was looking at it going, that's, it's disgusting. There's just these yellow... Stains all the way up the inside of this airport. It just looks foul. Maybe it's where they took up the wallpaper. Possibly. Maybe it's Pazuzu's influence. Mm. Anyway, yes, they, as you say, sorry, they arrive at Georgetown and their taxi immediately crashes into barbed wire. Uh, but it, and it, it winds up sort of swerving all over the road yeah. and apparently spinning around on the stop on the spot. <laughs> yes, yeah. And eventually smashes through the gate of the house, mm. uh, and the driver is mangled, but not dead because he's still moving it's just that nobody goes to help him never um while reagan and lamont are in the house and locusts burst out from the room and there's locusts everywhere and 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 it's all chaos all over the place sharon gets out of the cab and and leaves gene behind and yes um is reagan sees her possessed self on the bed and she's all made up to look that's seductive, right. which is weird. What is? What is? What's the point? I, 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 what's going on in this sequence? Because I'm struggling. I to, don't know. <laughs> I'm just kind of struggling to remember at this point. Reagan's over on one side of the room. Pazuzu's on the bed, and is Richard Burton, Father Lamont, is. Is he kind of reenacting the exorcism? Or... I think so. But anyway, there's locusts everywhere, and they're getting in the way and inconveniencing people. And, um... and 
Lamont is commanded to murder um, Reagan. Reagan. He's commanded. Yeah. Well, it turns out that Sharon's also been brushed with the wings yes. because she sets herself on fire yeah. in the doorway to stop Jean from getting in. Um, and I'd just like to point out that the, the driver of the cab is presumably still alive at this point, and nobody tries to help him. No. Um, um, yes. And then the house starts to break. And, and and the voice of Kokomo says to tear out Pazuzu's heart. That's right. And a swarm of locusts descends out of the air. And the house is literally is the cracks are appearing in the I mean the, it, if you're gonna have to if you're forced to film in studio because they won't let you film on location, then you might as well make take advantage of the fact that you're in the studio. Um it looks quite good. It's weirdly reminiscent of the end of Poltergeist. Yeah. Um but um, Reagan rejects Pazuzu, and then yes. the locusts all die, and Sharon no, dies. No, they don't. The lo- well, Sharon dies what with, on account of being all on fire. The locusts go back to being happy little grasshoppers. Oh, right. Yeah. See, she breaks the swarm. Oh, she... right, yeah. Um, Jean understands, question mark. <laughs> and um, Lamont and Reagan decide to leave Presumably to walk the earth, yes, and find other good locusts. Yeah, to protect the humanity with psychic powers, maybe. Yeah, um, and they walk. What's quite fun is that they walk off behind the house over what is actually in real life a sheer drop. I was going to say yes, yeah. <laughs> they do. They should just be walking down the. I mean, that's quite for a studio set. Is actually pretty good. The recreation of the. The steps have got a name, and I can't remember what they're called now. Uh, well, they're just known as the Exorcist steps. The Exorcist. That actually looks pretty good. It's quite a nice set, and and way at the back, there's obviously there's a bridge that's been rigged up to have like miniature cars moving over it and stuff, and it, it all looks very nice. Um, and if you uh, if you're watching a slightly dodgy, if you're watching a ropey copy, I don't think you'd necessarily know it hadn't been filmed on location, except for that weird sequence, as you say, where. Father Lamont and Reagan suddenly walk off through a field or something. Yeah. Um, and as the emergency services arrive, and yeah. it's uh, the, the final shot is actually quite neat as a, in a single take where you see the characters disappear off, mm. and we pull back to see Jean, and the camera spins around as we look on her face as the police and ambulance arrive. Yeah. And someone approaches her to ask what's going on, and the picture just flares out to white. Yeah. The film is it's reaching for interesting ideas. Yeah. It's trying to do something different, at the very least. But the script is so vague and messy yeah. and poorly... It's just poorly written. It doesn't hang together, even on its own terms, no. by having characters jumping about all over the place with no connecting tissue. And there's whole sequences. There's uh, One of the things that, that I've just remembered, there's a couple of nice close-up shots of 747s in the air, and I think they're meant to look like locusts. So it obviously means something to somebody. I just don't know what. It's, it's, re- yeah. it's, it, it's reaching towards coherence. Yeah. We know Borman can make really great films. He did his, three of his first four films are three absolute classics. And he would return to film later on. Excalibur, I think, is mm. pretty good. And uh, even the, uh, the Taylor of Panama in 2001 oh, is a really good, sharp um, satire on international relations and espionage. Mm. 
Um, but the, I mean, the performances here are, as you said, that no one really seems to. No one knows what what's going on, so they can't commit to anything. Oh, I suppose nobody's clear what the tone is. No. Um, yeah, and I suppose it's that, uh, as is always the case, it it starts with a lousy, it starts with a bad or at least an unclear script, doesn't it? And from that, nobody really quite knows what to do or how to play it. I mean, Louise Fletcher seems to come off the best because she's supposed to be baffled by everything. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, James Earl Jones has his usual James Earl Jones. Yeah, he's, that he's he can fine. make anything seem yeah. like it makes sense. Um, Burton Sleepwalks is checked through. out. I um, I remember reading the Mad Magazine parody of The Exorcist and basically it's just a succession of jokes about Richard Burton looking increasingly bored. <laughs> um, and yeah, they're, they're absolutely right. He, he's he's sleepwalking through this, he's not particularly engaged, but I suspect he'd got other things going on in his life and he didn't care. He was interested in the paycheck. Yeah. He wants to do a big studio movie with a nice big paycheck, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but there is such a thing as professionalism. Mm. And if he doesn't understand the script, he should ask questions. And if he still doesn't understand the script, <laughs> at least pretend that it makes yeah. sense. Ultimately, I think that it's just that there's no, yeah. no strong enough control. Um, the failure is Borman and, and, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, Pallenberg's. Friedkin and Blatty both saw the film on release. Freakin saw the film on opening day. I think I think it was free. I think it's freaking out of the two. You saw it on opening day, and after ten minutes, the audience were laughing their heads off, yeah. and he was joining in, and he was like, "Oh, the oh, it's terrible! Yeah. Oh, now the pressure's off. Now yeah. I don't have to worry about it." <laughs> no, that's what. And I suspect it was just well, if, if it was just bad, yeah. and if it was sullying the first film, he'd have been angry. But it was just awful in its yeah. own right. So, oh, well, that's all right then. And yeah. everyone everyone agrees that it's bad. Although Pauline Carl liked it. Yeah. Well, she said but she had some things. she had some odd uh, opinions. I mean, I can imagine this is the sort of film that Robert Roger Ebert would have probably given a good review to. I wonder if his review is quoted on the uh, the page here. I think actually he may have been one of the people that queued up to give it a good kicking. Oh, it was Blatty who laughed. Oh, right. Um, William Friedkin recalled hearing a story in which angry audience members chased Warner Brothers executives down the street. <laughs> I think that sounds more wish fulfilment, to be honest. Oh, he says says he did later see half an hour. Uh, he said it's a stupid mess made by a dumb guy, a horrible picture. Oh, he later said that it diminished the value of the original, and he called it the worst piece of shit I've ever seen, a fucking disgrace. That film was made by a demented mind. <laughs> Um, but I think that's uh, I think that is a lot of the critical reaction to it because I'm looking again looking at the Wikipedia page. Mark Commode hates the film. Yeah, um, and I, I suspect for the same reason that he feels its existence da- uh, it damages the reputation of the first one. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't feel like that myself. There's they're two such radically different. That that yeah. There's no there's no overlapping creative team. No. So. This can sit completely separate. Um, years later, of course, Blatty himself would write and direct The Exorcist 3, mm. which he sees as the true sequel to the first film, even though that was compromised as well, and oh, right. the studio forced him to include an actual exorcism. Oh, okay. uh, he wanted to call it uh, Legion, right. which is the name of the, the book that he adapted from. 
Uh, but the studio says, no, it has to have an exorcism in it, and it has to be called The Exorcist 3. Right. And the resulting film is actually quite good. Uh, and since then, there was the, uh, yeah. the the prequel and the the other second crack at the prequel. And there's also been a TV series, which is a sequel to the original as well, mm. with an adult Reagan played by Gina Davis. Okay. And there's the play. Yes, which I saw. <laughs> um... And I've managed to... It's not very good, disappointingly. Weirdly, the the play is actually the opposite of the film. In the, the first half of the play, which is all the, uh, the set-up, is great. And I came out at the interval thinking, oh, I can't wait to see how they do the the actual exorcism. And the, the exorcism, it just kind of let all the air out of the balloon. It was really odd. And you could feel the atmosphere in the theatre kind of deflate as everyone realised that this just wasn't working. And the nearest I can come to working at thinking about what went wrong was that they had got Ian McKellen to do the voice of Pazuzu with the result that everybody on stage was reacting to a pre-recorded soundtrack. So... The, regardless of whether it was one of those nights when the actors were excited and working together or, or a, mm. for example, a rainy Saturday afternoon matinee in February and nobody could really be bothered, they always had to work at the same pace because the pace was being dictated by this soundtrack that had been laid down months ago. And it just didn't didn't work. It's like the problem they had in Doctor Who when they were acting opposite Chameleon the Robot, yeah. whose voice track was pre-recorded. Yeah. And they had to put their dialogue in the gaps. Yes, or and it's the difference between that and, and when they did the Daleks live, and actually you've got actors talking to one another. Yes, than, yeah. I think the solution, which seems, I mean, it seems silly, but just have an actor do the voice live. Obviously, mm. the act, not the actor playing Reagan, because it's supposed to be this new deep yeah, yeah. voice. But you have someone off stage, maybe with a little. Yeah. monitor so there's a camera pointing at the actor so you can actually match the mouth movements they, uh, I went to see it with a friend and we kind of had this post-mortem in the pub afterwards where we tried to work out and the conclusion we came to actually was that you break from the film at this point and you have Pazuzu as a separate character on stage so that you've still got Reagan in the bed and they're still exercising her but the demon's lines are being spoken by a separate figure who is kind of moving around unseen, but is still able to put his performance in with the other actors. Mm. Interesting. It's how I, well, it could, all I can say is it couldn't have been any worse. <laughs> it's a shame, because mm. you, you think it would work well as a play. Yeah. The build-up of, the, of the, the first half, where you perhaps you keep the possessed Reagan off stage entirely. Yeah. So it's just there's, there's something in the room, there's something there. Mm. Looking, looking up towards where the room would be and keep that, that yeah. suspense and the second half you have the exorcism itself and you have the intensity yeah. and the histronics and the the total atmosphere uh, of that sequence yeah. um, particularly the end with uh, I mean I can't imagine you know, Karras throwing himself out of the window was you know, I, well. I don't honestly remember how they did. They had various bits of kind of stage magic, which were quite clever. So that the bit, so that um, Regan spins her head live on stage in front of you. I can't quite work out how they did it, <laughs> but I definitely, I definitely saw that. It's a new I, actor in each performance. I, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe that was one of the reasons why it closed. I think it may have been something to do with 
the wig because obviously she's wearing a fright wig because she's possessed and yeah. I think it may have been as simple as she kind of spun her head she turned her head away from the audience and then somehow they they have a, the, the wig just rotates round and while the while her face is obscured by the back of the wig she turns her head the other way and just kind of looks forward don't know but it looks it looked great yeah it's one of those revolving wigs yeah yeah everyone's got them you know kids love them <laughs> so it's the Exorcist as a whole has an interesting mm. legacy. Um, uh, but Exorcist 2, overall, I think it is it is a notable film. It's not something I think that should be forgotten. Because it does tell you, I think, it does, it does offer lessons in structure, in direction. But the fact that it's... It is trying to do something. And in the big mainstream movie as well, it's trying to be odd and weird. That is interesting, regardless of how badly the finished film turns out. So, it could be worse, because it could have been boring. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and Podnose is also on Patreon so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, I will spit a leopard. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.